you know, thinking about when we interact with people or understanding people. You know, a lot of times we see music, we say music is a universal language. It's really not. There are many languages, many musical languages, right? But I think that when we can appreciate or learn certain meanings of people's musical languages, that helps us feel closer to them. Hello, Cal Poly Pomona students, faculty, and staff, and beyond. My name is Henry Lee. I'm a music industry studies student and the host of CPP Music Couches, a podcast where we highlight members of the Cal Poly Pomona music community and have a talk as if we were sitting on the couches in the music department building. Today's guest is Dr. Jesse M. Vallejo. Dr. Vallejo is the assistant professor of ethnomusicology and the director of the Mariachi Ensembles at Cal Poly Pomona. She is a musicologist, a violinist, a community advocate, and a baker as well. The following interview was recorded live on December 10th, 2020. Dr. Vallejo, would you like to say hello and introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Hello, Henry, and hello, everybody. Um, I'm so happy to be here. And um, yeah, it's my sixth year at Cal Poly. I can't believe how fast the time has flown by. And I'll be looking forward to being back on campus with everybody um, by the end of next year, I guess. So. Yes. Um, during this time of recording, Cal State's just announced that they're going to um, do um, in-person instruction for fall 2021. Um, I'll be graduating by then, but I'm happy for all of the students that are going to be continuing for school, faculty. I'm just like wishing everyone to be safe during that time, even though um, people will be receiving the vaccine as well. The first question that I always ask the guests, how has life been for you during the pandemic? Anything new, anything that changed, new hobbies? Yeah, you know, it's been, it's been hectic. I think there, for a lot of us, it's been a lot busier than normal because we have to reinvent everything that we've done as a routine. And, you know, even just converting a world of music lecture that I prepared last year or years ago um, takes an extra few hours to record, edit, um, render into a video and upload to YouTube. Um, so it's been hectic and, um, but I've been trying to just <laughs> manage everything. Uh, I had a lot of extra things this semester, like applying for tenure, which is a, wh a whole big process. Um, and I moved, so I, I had bought a house in January and had been repairing it this entire time. So my new hobbies are plastering and skim coating walls of uh, century homes. <laughs> Fine. Well, congratulations on the new house. Thank you. Tell us about your journey into pursuing a career in music. How did you know that you want to do music as a career? You know, I think it took a lot of points in my life that sort of guided me here. I um, used to be really into science and sports and, you know, whether I had injuries or different things, I just started being more involved in music. My friends were in music. Um, and when I applied for college, I was between in environmental science and um, music. And I chose to go into music because I wanted to push myself to be a better violin player. Then when I was an undergrad and I was contemplating performance or ethnomusicology for my master's, um, I was a music ed major. I spoke with some of my music historian professors who supported me in um, research. And so I actually, was recommended to apply to a conference and I got to go present my senior project essentially um, in San Antonio, Texas, which was a pretty cool experience. And um, so I think those experience sort of navigated me to apply to, to um, ethnomusicology programs. Um, and I went to UCLA because it was my dream school for undergrad, but I'm from New York, so it was too mm. far away. And also I got better financial aid there. I, I had a great um, TA ship set up. So um, I just kind of went where the winds set my sails a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I just noticed that like, you know, like careers, especially like within music, it's not like really linear. A lot of things mm -hmm. like change depending on like what comes into your life and whatever like you discover along the way as well. Definitely. <laughs> um, so how did you end up being an educator at Cal Poly Pomona? So um, let's see, in terms of being an educator, I did teach um, before I went to graduate school. I was a K-12 orchestra teacher. 
um, which was a great time. I was at a fantastic district in West Genesee High School um, back on the outskirts of Syracuse. And so I knew that I liked teaching. And when I was finishing my doctorate, I was lucky to have some teaching experience from UCLA and UC Riverside in a, a few different departments. And so um, the job for Cal Poly sort of popped up and I almost missed it. But one of my friends um, who had just gotten a job in Texas was like, this sounds like they want a mariachi person, you better apply. And so I applied and you know, went through the whole process and um, I'm so happy to have gotten the job here. And I get to stay in a, in a city or a county that I really love, so. How is that like um, change in life like for you? It was pretty, it was a, a huge change my first year. I think I came to LA and I thought it would be a phase of my life. I had always wanted to come to LA because my father was born in Cudahy. So he lived in um, South Central for, until um, he was about 10. And then they moved to New York and that's where he met my mother when they were in high school. Um, but I think I came out and I knew I had family here. And so I reached out and I have cousins in you know, Sacramento and um, in La Puente. And, but I, I always thought like, well, when you get a job in this field, you have to move all over the country, sometimes all over the world. And so I didn't expect to stay. But my first year was hard because I felt like I only knew people in school and I came from a small town, you're friends with your neighbors, you have family who are neighbors, and it was really hard to adjust. Um, but after like another year or two, I started making friends from other schools. I've made friends who aren't in academia, um, musicians, and I would go to shows. And I really started to feel like I had more roots here. And by the time I was graduating, I was like, oh no, I don't wanna leave everywhere I went. You know, I love DC, I love Ecuador where I've done my research. Um, but I always missed LA. So I was really happy to be able to stay. A lot of people come in and out of California, whether they like have like a job offer or just want to like, experience life here. They like either like don't like it or they do like it and that stuff. But it's nice that you find a way of living in like California and that stuff, especially during today since it's like harder to even have a living in California. Yeah. Yeah. It took a lot of planning, like for buying the house. I've, you know, I never thought I'd be able to do that, especially in the job market alone, you know, and, um, but LA is a city that you feel like sometimes it eats you up and there's other days, you know, when you're sitting on the traffic in the 405 or the 10 and you're just like, why? <laughs> um, but then there's other days that it's just such a invigorating city that, um, and a community that I really love it. Um, since you are a ethnomusicologist, um, would you like to introduce what is musicology and ethnomusicology um, and what are like the differences between them? Sure. Um, well, you know, there's all these debates about are there differences? Um, <laughs> and sometimes people hyphenate the word or they put parentheses around ethno. Um, typically, an ethnomusicologist will study music that um, gets left out of the Western European classical canon, um, like 17th and 18th century music or sorry, in, in 19th century music. You know, an ethnomusicologist really focuses on studying people through music and, you know, studying people through all types of activities. So it's such a broad field. And I think that's why I really was drawn to it because I have my science background. You know, I was really into environmental science. Um, I was really into learning languages and, you know, teaching and traveling you know, ethnomusicology allowed me to explore those things where I didn't feel guilty for not being in the practice room five hours one day or, you know, those types of things. Um, I mean, I still love playing my instrument and so I never wanted to give up analyzing music. Um, but yeah, musicology and ethnomusicology are these two fields that um, can overlap very much and some people could debate they're the same. But a musicologist, sometimes the more traditional route is to study, um, you know, scores and study, um, things within uh, European music, but not always. I've, I've met a lot of great uh, musicologist friends um, who took classes with me at UCL, UCLA for ethnomusicology. So there are so many possibilities. If you like music, musicology is a really great um, path in terms of learning so much. It seems like the title of like musicology, um, it seems like very, like more like Eurocentric since it's like folk, has this like focus of like western music rather than like ethnomusicology where it's just like study of like um 
different music cultures. Um, does ethnomusicology um, also like explores like different groups of people, different communities as well, other than like cultures? Yeah, so you can look at subcultures. Um, there's parts of ethnomusicology that also they call it zoom musicology that look at animals and sounds, you know, how people and animals might interact through sound, right? And then, you know, both fields are dealing with um, some really serious discussions of decolonizing and anti-blackness and also colonialism and pushing back on the colonialism in the fields. So um, you can follow a lot of great discussions, sometimes tough discussions, but I'm really glad that the field is reckoning more with our problematic histories <laughs> and looking for ways to have more um, relevant and um, respectful research going forward. It's a good thing about like research, especially with like today in today's society, how people are like exploring more of what has been like overlooked throughout history. Mm -hmm. um, so would you like to explain more of like, how did you get into musicology? Sure. Um, well, I, I always really loved my like research papers that I wrote um, in undergrad. I, I felt like I loved digging into the books and walking through the library. And, you know, you look up one book on the, the catalog. Um, but then when you got to the stacks, you would see all these other books. You're like, oh my God, that didn't pop up in my search. And I just get lost in the library sometimes. Um, and I felt a little bit like an investigative reporter. And it felt a little bit like some of the research or stuff that I would, I would have done in some of my science classes. I think I would take advantage of those writing assignments to dig deeper. And then eventually I got recommended um, by a Spanish professor to pursue this um, presidential scholars um, research uh, opportunity. So I was able to get a grant for my junior and senior year of college. And that paid for me to travel to Mexico, do some of my first experiences in field work. I met um, my dad's cousins down in Mexico, which was a really fun ex um, experience. And then I was able to uh, work on that paper that eventually took me to San Antonio and things like that. So, you know, and I even had thought about the field back in, I think, high school. We had um, a guest conductor for my youth orchestra who talked about ethnomusicology. And I heard travel, languages, music, like, what is this? Is like <laughs> research? Like, and so I had wanted to go to UCLA, for example, for undergrad. And my mother said, absolutely not. Out of state tuition was out of our budget. And um, was far away and said, you, you know, you can go, but you'll have to figure out if you can come back for the holidays. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll stay in New York. Um, so it, it was kind of, I was one of those rare people who um, had a really sharp focus on what I wanted to do and somehow knew about ethnomusicology real early in life. A lot of people come across it later. Um, but, you know, I still had a lot of like fun twists and turns in my career path. So I kind of feel that with like um, getting into it later because I'm like starting to realize that what I like about music is just like basically learning about all these like different um, communities, subcultures and like all these trends that are happening. I'm always like curious of like, why is this um, music popular? Um, how is this um, community surviving even though they're like so little? And in fact, I also like want to like um, promote what these cultures are like that they're existing yeah I had like a guest where um I don't know if you know Buzz Gravel but um mm -hmm. I interviewed him last week and we talked about like um fretless guitar he's a fretless guitar performer and like we um kind of like using it as like a platform to like kind of just like explore um what fretless guitar is but anyways I'm um, getting back into um this interview um what research have you done in the past what are your favorite parts or favorite topics that you have like looked into? Sure. Um, so my, my senior project in undergrad was focused on like a teaching aspect since I was a music education major. So I was looking at how is something passed on in an oral tradition. Um, and so I looked at the kind of oral tradition side of mariachi music, although mariachi music for a long time has also been passed on through um, sheet music, you know, a lot of the music was composed for films and people would either learn it by ear or read it when they were recording it for studios, right? So um, that was something I, a stereotype I had and then I learned later um, once I got into the field. But so I looked at mariachi teaching, I looked at mariachis and plazas and how people like have this, these social networks. And then for my masters, I 
wanted a way to connect back with home. So when I was in California, I made my research back near um, where I grew up. And um, also teaching, I was looking at, there's this family of like excellent teachers who are renowned in their community for teaching Mohawk really well. And so I grew up on traditional Haudenosaunee lands and um, I grew up on near the Onondaga territory, but where I went to school, it was on Mohawk lands. And um, I saw um, Escania music being performed by the Aquasasne Mohawk women singers um, uh, on campus. And so I went and I, I got to meet some of the performers and um, Koanoni, um, Cook Peters was one of the my main informants and you know guided me through the project. And um, so I got to look at teaching and one of my peer reviewed articles um, is published on that work that I um, conducted with her and her family. And then for my uh, dissertation topic, I went to Ecuador and looked at um, teaching and reciprocity, but it became more about thinking about sound as gendered and, um, and space time. Um, and how music is like a theory of space time. So it, it kind of changed because when I got there, I had these ideas, but other topics kept coming up and I had to keep think, rethinking these things because it was new for me. I mean, it's funny because, you know, I, some people might say, oh, I'm an expert on Quechua music or something, but I feel like such the novice, you know, I feel like I've been welcomed in a way to learn the basics of it, but, you know, still wrapping my head around all these cool ideas and learning about um, music from just a completely different perspective than what I grew up with. Um, so yeah, my, my dissertation research is on um, Quechua flute music. So those of you who have taken World of Music, uh, we usually have the discussion about traveling in time backwards and gender fluidity and sound and all of this. Then um, my current research projects are kind of shifting back to mariachi where I started looking at um, mariachi and college curriculums, looking at gentrification um, in mariachi and also um, mariachi outside of Mexico and the US. So I've, when I lived in Ecuador, I played in mariachi groups. Um, I've gone to Cuba to play mariachi music and I have friends from Venezuela, from Colombia and all these places who are mariachis. So um, it, it seems like a lot of random uh, <laughs> topics together, but in, in terms of my life and path, they've sort of made sense of where I've connected with people and um, certain topics of teaching or, you know, other topics. So those are like really big topics, a lot of like traveling and like meeting new people and like always like formulating like new questions and newer like topics to like explore into. Mm -hmm. That's what I love about the humanities. I think is that, I mean, I love science and I was really excited to get the offer to teach at Cal Poly because it's a STEM school but I love that in the humanities, we can revisit questions so frequently and refine them or, or have completely different answers later. And that type of those mental exercises, I guess, and, and explorations um, with these ideas can be really exciting. Just questions for like students that's, that are interested in um, research in this field. The music department do doesn't offer a degree program musicology am I right yeah but um, most programs don't have an, an undergraduate um, uh, specialization or option um, in musicology and that's okay and I can talk about that in a minute <laughs> yeah usually isn't those classes are like under like um, general music or music industry studies um, yeah so I, I would say a lot of the classes that would prepare you for a musicology degree are your music history ones that um, you usually take as um, the core classes or an elective. And then, you know, in our program, particularly, I have a couple classes I designed when I was hired. Um, the organology class where we think about um, uh, material, uh, material culture and um, our relationships with these objects or sometimes not objects, they're not inanimate objects, always uh, instruments, right? Um, or field methods, things that can prepare you to walk into a research program. Um, but you can take electives in anthropology, sociology, um, or even science that can help round out your, your focus. But general studies would be kind of the, the sort of package of a major that prepares you, gives you room for those electives. Why should like a music major, whether they're like a music composer, um, performance major, or 
doing a specialty in like um, technology or recording, um, why should they try out research in music? Well, I think research in music offers so many opportunities. Um, you know, if you want to research into acoustics or um, how people perceive sound and how could you make a better app or a better device for recording, right? Um, that could be a research project. You could research um, the pieces that you're playing or, you know, if you go on to performance, a lot of times you have to write program notes. Most of you have to write program notes for your um, senior recitals, right? And so there can be some really great research projects where you can explain to the audience, why am I performing this? What, what is relevant or what is, you know, capturing about this piece? And it, that could be particular to your perspective, but it's still this like educational informative piece to something that's, you know, it's not just performance. A lot of times we're learning oral history through those performances. You know, it's not just dots on the page. You're reading the sheet music and thinking about, well, how did menu and, you know, interpret this? And those are parts of um, uh, research. So I think that it doesn't have to be just musicological, but we can take advantage of so many ways of thinking, you know, with these questions scientifically or through the humanities approach of qualitative research um, to learn so much and then share what we know with people. So I, I think it's great for everybody to get experience with it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We have like sheet music um, from like a composer that made this music like centuries ago. Everyone has like a different way of like interpreting it other than like any instructions that's on sheet music and that stuff. So that's interesting how we like think about it and and especially if we're in like groups we end up like having like some common agreement um, around it or if it's just a conductor's decision to do that as well i would say like a good example of performers who are great like researchers um you know doing field work interviews learning from people oral tradition and then um hitting the book sometimes if, if necessary is um uh, the carolina chocolate drops and people who've broken off from the group. So like Rhiannon Giddens and um, Don Flemons are really great examples of how they're bringing um, voices, you know, recording them and educating the public about like black cowboy music and black country music. And so I think like people, a lot of the students I know get excited about social justice opportunities. And I think research gives you a way to dig deep and ask these questions and then, you know, challenge or, or rethink, you know, even our contemporary curriculum, you know, how can it be in the future? How can it be more just? How can more people be represented um, fairly? You know, that type of thing. Do you have any tips or research approaches for anyone currently researching music? First, I think that Cal Poly students in particular, although if people are listening from other campuses, I'd uh, recommend they check into different opportunities, but they're, um, there are usually so many student research opportunities that sometimes offer funding. So where I went to undergrad, it was um, the presidential scholars through the, the campus president. Um, and that was $2,000 I had to spend on whatever I wanted, but I had to prepare a budget and have a mentor professor. Um, at Cal Poly, there's RISCA, R-S-C-A, and um, that can offer funding. It's a conference. Um, it can be like a competition. Um, there's another organization I'm, or committee that I'm part of uh, called the Wegland Committee. And um, we're going to be supporting like research um, papers and things like that for social justice. And, you know, music definitely connects with social justice um, or science. You know, if people are thinking kinesiology, music therapy, those types of things. There's so many opportunities and sometimes they're funded. So if you want to you can shape your senior project or even just a separate project on preparing this type of portfolio, these experiences, giving back to the community um, and having this experience to go into either a job or graduate school and things like that. Um, so I, I hope everybody does a little bit of research. You know, it's not just writing. I know sometimes writing is the, the part that students go, you know, it, it's hard. It's, it's like listening to your, a recording of yourself, right? You see your words on the page and you're like, oh, I can't believe I wrote that. But when you work on it and, and it gets better with revisions, just like it gets better with hitting the practice room. Um, it's so nice to like, I can still take out my journal article that's published in, you know, the volume it's in and say, oh, 
I wrote that or my dissertation, right? And so it can be such a rewarding experience. So I hope everybody dabbles in it a little bit. You said there was like um, a limited amount of like campuses that offer like a dedicated um, musicology programs and you've attended UCLA. Do you know like any other um, campuses that offer a musicology program, whether it's in California or out of state? I'm, I'm sure there's other programs that have like general musicology as um, a concentration. UCLA, as far as I know, it's the only ethnomusicology department and it's the only undergrad ethnomusicology specialization. Um, there might be others that have like other names like that lump things together like world music or different types of things. Um, I know like CalArts has great programs where you can study, um, you know, South Indian or North Indian music specifically mm. and everything. Um, I think that ethnomusicology specifically, you know, sometimes it offers you so many experiences and so many skills that you can have a wide variety of job paths. But if you get a master's or PhD or something just in ethnomusicology, sometimes the, the trick is um, communicating what those skills are to people who see a word and they go, what, <laughs> what is that? Um, so I think that having a broad, you know, program like a general studies program can be beneficial because it can give you the opportunity to dabble in the music history or dabble in even anthropology, or if you have an ethnomusicologist on staff running ethnomusicology classes, you can get this combination. And it's really about developing the skills of writing, you know, being able to check your sources, um, and being a musician where you have sharp ears because when you're listening and then trying to analyze music that's completely new to you sometimes, not always, um, you know, it, it requires like musicianship skills, strong ones. So I think having a strong foundation in those things gives you an opportunity to go in a lot of different directions. All right. This is all good for like anyone who is like looking into fields of like music history and musicology. So now we'll be moving on to our next big section which is the mariachi ensembles on campus. Um, for any listener who aren't familiar with mariachi, uh, what is mariachi music? Well, uh, mariachi music is um, mostly strings and trumpets, you know, based on, it's a type of uh, Mexican national music. Um, you know, there's a lot of different varieties of mariachi where it, it can be hard to to define just one way, there's, I would say there's a lot of sub-styles of mariachi, but usually you have um, people playing in small groups, you know, anywhere from two people to 16 people and, um, you know, singing songs, uh, brancheras, corridos, um, boleros, um, sones. So the sones are really more of the kind of the, the roots of the music. And then other things came about later um, like the cancion, uh, the rancheras and boleros come from like also the movie time and it, you know, the cine de oro or the golden cinema age. And, you know, bolero is actually Afro-Cuban music that made it over into Mexico. So there, there's so many influences of mariachi music, um, but it's often seen as a traditional Mexican music. And, um, but it's really, as we know it today, about a hundred years old, you know, um, before the Cine de Oro, it was like um, kind of not standardized instrumentation all of the time. Each town or community might have its own variation. Um, so it's, it's based on like old uh, string uh, combinations or music ensembles from uh, colonial times with uh, Jesuit influence. You know, I see like harps, guitars, and um, violins and singing, um, dancing sometimes. It keeps evolving. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's and we have show style and you have like the ones you might see at a party and sometimes, you know, things vary, but um, uh, it's, it's one of my favorite types of music to play. It's challenging and fun and engaging and everything. Mm. So what are the mariachi ensembles that are on campus? I noticed that there are at least like two ensembles that you direct mm -hmm. each semester. Yeah, so um, we have Mariachi Los Broncos, which uh, because it's the, the name of our mascot um, of the Bronco. Uh, it's our you know, premier mariachi group in the sense that um, usually students in that group 
are more experienced with the style. They already play guitarron or, you know, some of the mariachi instruments that are typical, you know, that basically people who have more experience with the repertoire and their instruments. Um, mariachi Los Caballeros, um, I, I chose that name because it's horse related and it could be like the cavalry. <laughs> Sometimes mm -hmm. it's translated as um, gentlemen or gentlewomen and things like that. But um, I chose it as more of the cavalry, like people associated with horses. Um, I had to be mindful not to pick another horse name of a mariachi group that's popular in the area. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that sort of limited some of our options. But um, uh, that ensemble uh, is more for people who are uh, brand new to the style or even brand new to their instrument. Um, mm. Sometimes people come to me and they say, my mom bought me a violin and we couldn't afford lessons. And I always wanted to play, can I join? And I think a mariachi ensemble on campus is really important in the ways that it can connect people to their heritage, especially a heritage that's not really celebrated in a lot of curriculums. And um, also can give us like some great performance opportunities. So I, I feel like it's a, a community that where I can have a balance of, you know, pushing for musical experience and excellence, but also being as inclusive as possible. So Mariachi Los Caballeros also uh, goes over like less repertoire within a, a term and more technique. So students who are taking a second ensemble, practicing a secondary instrument, it, it can be, you know, a great learning experience without having to learn like two hours of music in a semester and go perform a bunch of times. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And then sometimes we have small combos. Students come in with Norteño experience or Sierreño experience or even Banda experience. So I try to cater to those um, interests. And, you know, we even had like a trio romantico with all these, we had hotshot guitarists who could play all this right hand finger picking style. So um, I try to have fun with it and vary it as much as possible. All seems fine. <laughs> um, I noticed that like the mariachis on campus are like very active. You guys like perform like for events that are on campus, even off campus mm -hmm. as well. One thing I'm wondering is just, can any student audition for these ensembles? Um, is it required to like know Spanish or be proficient with the mariachi instrument? Um, any, anybody can audition and um, it's not required to know Spanish. When I first started learning mariachi music, I barely spoke Spanish and mariachi music helped me learn Spanish and connect with my family. Um, but, you know, some people have joined because they, it's not their heritage language and it's not their heritage music, but they just like it. So um, I don't know if you remember Sophia Lin, for example, um, she took Spanish in high school and really wanted to join because she wanted to play violin as a secondary instrument. Um, she's a piano major, right? Mm. So um, anybody can audition and join. And depending on what, you know, what the balance is each semester, um, I might play somebody in Los Broncos or Los Caballeros. And that's just to balance out the sections. Uh, but since we are so busy, we sometimes perform 20, 30 times a year. Um, which is a lot than just the like departmental concerts and things. <laughs> um, I often treat it as one team, just two classes. And so if there's somebody who I feel like can be challenged to show up to a performance, um, I treat it sort of how mariachi gigs work, where a lot of times you, you have a, a gig with a group you've never performed with. You don't know their repertoire because it's limited to what people sing. And then it also changes based on what keys they sing everything in. So mariachi music is really challenging because you can show up and you can know your instrument well, and you can know a bunch of songs perfectly, but you'll have three hours of requests where you don't know any of those songs. And, or it's not in a single key and you can't that you, you're familiar with and you can't rely on muscle memory. Hmm. So I purposely push people and say, you know what? You might have only played for three weeks, but you can join on this and you'll be the only newbie in the, in the performance. But I want to break people of that fear and give them that confidence in improvising or following when something's unfamiliar. So yeah, anybody can join and um, just have fun singing and playing with everybody. These are also like good challenges for like anyone who wants to become better with their instrument as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So I noted on like social media that there are like mariachi bands still performing together now, just socially distanced Mm -hmm. Um, with the Cal Poly mariachis. I noted that you guys have been sharing content on social media, um, especially with virtual performances. Would you like to share your experiences about performing with the Cal Poly Pomona mariachis during these times? Sure. Um, So I don't have us doing any like live, even distance performances, just because um, case numbers have just been going up since school started, Um, not necessarily with students, but just in general in the country and in the county. So um, what we have done is a couple music videos where um, we spaced it out. We only booked like three people a day. And Mm. um, Alex Mascoro, an MIS um, alumnus, he, he recorded us at his home studio. So the plan was to have another one for the end of the semester, but with the increase in cases, I decided not to do that. And I know that lots of mariachis are still performing. Um, I still take gigs here and there um, to help pay for the extra bills that <laughs> I would have had no problem with this year. Um, but you know, you have to be careful and make sure you wear your mask, stand away from people um, and go out. But I'm, I'm not requiring students to do that at all. So it's, it's mostly just been things online and in small sections recording um, and staggering people's uh, time together. Um, and then I did one thing at the DAW with um, one of our guitarists and singers, uh, Bethlehem. She's been doing this really cute puppet, uh, Lola mm. Pomona. And I loved Sesame Street when I was a kid and I loved um, Mr. Rogers. And now that I have godchildren and things, I, you know, I love those things because it I don't know, you look back and you have these nostalgic memories and then you also see like the educational value in um, offering those things for students. So, you know, I feel like it's a, a great role that Bethlehem's doing. And when they asked me to go perform and, and play, I, I went, but that was also kind of distanced and we had our masks on except for, um, I had mine off for the taping, but. There's definitely like still this like devotion into like um, creating music and creating content, but with the, like having safety in mind you know california has like cases spiking up and we're in a stay-at-home order at the Mm -hmm. moment to a greater extent outside of the cal poly mariachis um what challenges have like all mariachi bands face during this pandemic they have a lot of challenges um i think in a place like la you can actually make it's probably one of the best cities to be a mariachi because or the best you know southern california Um, You can be full-time mariachi and make a decent living even for the high expenses. You know, there's, there are issues of gentrification and people being pushed out of certain neighborhoods. Um, So it's not like you're making bank, you're not making a ton of money, but you can make a respectable living. Um, But you don't have, you know, we don't have universal healthcare. Um, We don't have rent control in a lot of places. Um, This is what some of my research has been on gentrification. I I was actually presenting on this in Chiapas, Mexico, the week COVID hit. And then I was all terrified that I wasn't going to get back from Mexico. (laughs) Um, And I was there with a a couple alumni or a few alumni who were presenting with me. Um, It's been really hard. You know, there are people who um, have lost all of their income or they have to choose between exposing themselves or becoming homeless. And um, so when people have gotten sick, a lot of mariachis have banded together to fundraise Um, to have food drives in Mariachi Plaza, but there's a lot of mariachis who don't live in Boyle Heights. Um, They've been pushed out as far as Victorville and places where they can afford to live. Um, Mm. So it's hard. And I I try and be as supportive of my my friends and the community as much as possible. I, I went in the beginning of the pandemic, I was able to help with some food distribution of like home drop-offs for some of the elderly mariachis we knew needed help. you know, I think in some ways mariachis were such a symbol of LA that we get more attention than um, some of the other types of folk musicians and musicians who are struggling too. So I've, I think we've been fortunate, but still facing a lot of the same struggles people are um, who don't have the health insurance and the, the pension and those types of um, social benefits that protect them. Yes. Um, please support your local musicians, musicians you know please support your local mariachis as well. So I noted your activity in like community involvement and advocacy around the city of Pomona, such as being, you know, a mariachi musician and like organizing events at the DAW Center. 
Um, fun fact, um, Dr. Vallejo sits on the university-wide committee on campus, the um, Transportation Advisory Com Committee, or TAC for short. She sits as a non-voting member. Those non-voting members in, those, in that community are like known as friends of the committee. I sit in as a voting member of the committee, um, being a student representative and fulfilling one of my duties within student government. So about this committee, would you like to explain how did you get involved with this committee and what are like your passions within transportation? Sure. So I always joke with people that um, I'm a big public transit advocate because I have, my father's a fantastic mechanic, which means I grew up driving the crappiest cars that could be put on life support always. And, um, <laughs> and I grew up in a car dependent place um, mm. that was frustrating. Um, and I have an invisible disability where sometimes I can't drive. And so I was really excited to move to a big city when I studied abroad in Madrid, for example, and I got to travel all through Europe through trains. It was a life-changing experience for me, especially after I had a bout of not being able to drive. Then um, when I came to LA, it's funny because everybody says, oh, LA, you know, public transit sucks. It really doesn't. It's really affordable. And there are certain lines and certain pockets that are harder to use. But considering that LA County is the size of, you know, the country of Belgium almost, um, it's actually pretty fantastic. And I lived here for seven years without a car. And I even dealt with mariachi gigs without a car until um, I got a job at Cal Poly. And there's a long history of um, past presidents taking away public transit connections to campus. And so my first semester, I had to teach an 8 a.m. class. And I also taught on opposite days, a class that ended at 8 p.m. And there were absolutely no bus routes um, that operated at the times I needed to be able to get to and from where I was living and I couldn't afford to move. Um, I had six jobs uh, when I was, before I got hired at Cal Poly and it was all like part-time work. I was one of those freeway flyer uh, lecturers. I borrowed a car for that, um, those two quarters when I was doing that. So I know the struggles um, and I, I feel like public transit isn't as scary or it's, it's not even as unhealthy as people claim. Um, certainly the bus drivers are at an exposure risk with COVID, but um, buses and, and trains have not been super spreader instances. And a lot of times if there's good air circulation and enough spacing, it's safer than other places where we often go during this time. Um, so anyways, I love transit. I've taken all over the world. I saw um, Rick Wilson actually from uh, Urban Planning. Uh, Dr. Wilson was interviewed by the LA Times and I saw Cal Poly Pomona. And I said, ooh, a transit enthusiast. And so I just wrote to him and wanted to nerd out over transit. And we met at Starbucks near the library. And he told me that they had just formed the ad hoc committee through ASI about transportation. And I should join, join in as an advocate, as somebody who is experienced and uses it um, on a frequent basis. So that's how I got connected with, I would say, some of my closest friends on campus um, mm. on those committees. And uh, I've often been contributing as somebody who uses the system, knows advantages, disadvantages, and also um, deals with um, disability issues, getting to campus and mobility issues, and then also um, just uh, affordability, all sorts of things. So I'm on there as, I might not be an urban planner, but um, I feel very passionate about um, cutting greenhouse gases, making things more sustainable, making things affordable. I, I saved a lot of money while I was a graduate student just because I didn't have a car and I didn't have to pay for a parking uh, place. So I saved like almost $7,000 a year on the West side by not having a car. Um, I negotiated lower rent and I rented <laughs> out my parking space. For those of you who are like, what? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I love that work and I look forward to staying on it and we might rotate, you know, we can apply to be a voting member or not and all of that. Yeah, public transportation, it has like its pros and cons, but it's definitely like a like basic human necessity and that stuff that um, I also advocate for only because I have like ran public transportation for nearly two years um, um, when I try to get to my community college um, before I got my license as well and that stuff. And curiously, um, most of my like music classmates, they've also taken the bus. So we, we like usually like have our instruments on the bus and like um, even like do like 
our like theory, music theory homework on the bus as well before class. <laughs> it, no, it's like a community. I mean, I've done advising for students, not even in my department on the bus. Um, and I've made friends with bus drivers. Um, there's a storytelling collective. Um, it's called Busted. So kind of like TED Talks. It's more like the moth though. Um, <laughs> and it's about uh, pedestrian, bike, and public transit use, anything but a car. And it's this fun storytelling community that um, uh, performed on campus for one of our uh, tech uh, meetings and conferences. And it's just, you, like I've made friends on the bus. It's just a nice way to get to know people and I don't have to worry about the traffic or the stress and I'm not getting mad at somebody who cut me off, which it was probably an accident, you know, that type of thing. So, um, and then I do have to say, I know more students who've dropped out of campus because they can't afford to get to campus than any other reason. And so that was a, a large motivator and it still continues to be as to why I, I still serve on this committee and I will always be a friend of the committee no matter what position I have, so. Mm -hmm. One of my um, biggest reasons of like joining ASI because I noted that um, Cal Poly doesn't like offer like free bus passes for students attending campus and other, other colleges nearby, they like offer like a free bus program, but strangely not Cal Poly Pomona. It's been like one of my like duties that I want to do, um, just like overlook like public transportation, but within like the transportation advisor committee, I also like look into stuff for like sustainability, um, alternative transportation methods. And um, with people like are like non-voting members like you, you get to like voice out your like ideas and opinions, which is like, um, pretty strong in like making this um, this committee active and to have like a direction of what this committee wants to do as well. I'm really looking forward to um, us having the class path through Foothill Transit um, and free bus passes and things for students and incentives not to drive at least every day. You know, even one day a week of taking the bus can save so much on carbon emissions and save so much on stress from parking. And, you know, future plans. I mean, I think that we have a supportive group and we're so lucky to have students like you on it who are there and can say yes this is the student experience and these are student needs so. we both have like a concentration within music but um despite this we are like interested in like um community advocacy and that stuff question for you is that music performers and composers how can they use their talents to give back to the community you know a lot of ways making music and inspiring people um is one way i mean i think Sometimes in my world of music class, when I ask people to write about music, you know, I'm sitting here thinking of this global perspective of all the different ways that music is meaningful to people. And I see that students often gravitate to the emotional aspect. And I think that's something not unique, but, you know, in some ways it's specific to our society where a lot of people are dealing with um, stressful things in their lives and need that emotional support through music. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of times I try and make sure everybody gets paid if I'm negotiating a gig, that everybody gets paid fairly. But, you know, sometimes we can decide like, well, I can afford to do X number of hours or X number of gigs. And it might just be one, that's fine, to donate to something to a good cause. So usually like the mariachi on campus, we get, we negotiate some type of donation for the students and everything, but, um, there are one or two things we'll do for free. And that depends on the context of everything. I think also, you know, a lot of us, especially now in COVID, we see the, when we don't have the social support through things like rent control and all of that, to really think about these social services that we all rely on. And obviously music and the arts are, are important and everybody's watching Netflix. And you think about all the work that goes into Netflix. Like I've just finished, four seasons of Fargo and like the, the music producer, I think her name's, uh, is it Maggie, oh, Maggie Phillips, but brilliant choices. Right. And even the work she does and like how much that makes my experience better. Like we have to find ways to support people who are in these careers and be involved in social things or social programs. And I think even if you're just helping deliver food to somebody or you don't donate an hour of music, you might donate an hour of, um, dropping off food to um, elderly or people in the community who are at risk. You know, there's a lot of ways. And I think just building it into like a monthly thing or, you know, 
it doesn't have to be every day you're sacrificing everything to give to everybody else, but just to find little things here and there. Yes. Are there any other community advocacy activities that you have done and that you're proud of? Let's see. Well, I've, I've been involved with the DAW. I guess it's kind of between community work and also campus work um, and finding ways to be involved with Pomona more. Um, I think that a lot of times Pomona is treated as a drive-through community for those of us who are um, working or living or studying at Cal Poly. You know, so I, I try and be involved in um, some of the work, like I donate time to work with the youth mariachi um, at the DAW here and there. If they need a sub, I'll go in and sub if I don't have a conflict. Um, when I was in Pasadena, so that's where I was living before, um, I got into some public advocacy works with like a Complete Streets Coalition. So I've done um, advocating for like bike safety or safe bike routes and safe pedestrian routes. Um, right in front of like where I lived on um, Del Mar and El Molino, there was the school and there was a family that had um, people killed from traffic violence. So it's, there are a lot of these communities that you can get involved with like organizations within your own community that work on like tenants rights that work on um, whatever other social needs that there are. And there were urban planners and there were policy decision makers who would help me feel more confident going to town halls and advocating for safety um, for people. So that, that's something that I miss and I look forward to now that I just moved to Pomona in the last couple months um, to finding ways to connect with even more communities. Um, and even uh, council members are often a good starting point. So there's some council members I follow through Instagram and um, when they have certain events like they needed uh, citrus donated for a food pantry. Um, I have a lemon tree in my house. So we harvested everything last spring and while we were not living here, but uh, remodeling the house. Um, and then I brought lemons there, so. You are a baker and a fan of baking pies. Tell me how did this uh, pie frenzy started? <laughs> okay, well, I would say about close to 10 years, maybe 11 years ago, um, after I'd been living out here and um, I couldn't always afford to go home for the holidays. You know, it, it can be hard to be away from your nuclear family, parents, siblings, and direct cousins you grew up with, I started thinking, well, how can I make these times feel more connected to the people I miss? And when I was growing up, uh, my, my mother always baked pies and cookies with us. And, and actually, my, I'm, I, I call myself the mediocre chef as a joke on the, on the hashtag, but really I am like the worst cook and the worst baker in my family, like by far. Um, my brother makes like the most awesome vegan cookies like he used to bake every week for his ski club team in high school um my sister uh, works for the department of agriculture and she's really into like urban gardening um in brooklyn so she always has these cool things growing and my mom does all this you know like kefir and fermented stuff and always had a garden so for me the food and uh, especially baking was something i could do when i didn't have a garden i didn't have a space for a garden so I just started making pies and honestly was really frustrated with the crust for years until I got used to pivoting if I made a mistake or the humidity is off and you have to balance that. Um, and even when I was doing my field work in Ecuador, cooking was a way for me to make friends. I baked pies, I made Italian pasta and just, or pizza and things for my host family and my, my compadres now, and um, even for their neighbors. And so cooking became something that you'll find a few dishes in your repertoire that work well, you know, experiment with them. And it's an excuse to share with the neighbors. You know, I shared some pie with my new neighbors recently. So then when with the mariachi, like at the end of the semester, like a couple of times I baked a pie and brought it in to treat them all for all the hard work they did. And students were like, oh, this is, this is so great. Or some people were like, I've never had homemade apple pie. And for me, since everybody in my family's baking all the time, it's like, I mean, we just never had not homemade, you know, apple pie or whatever. So um, it just became like a stress reducing hobby, you know, sometimes stressful when the crust just won't work, but, uh, or when you have an epic fail, like I tried making a pomegranate um, raspberry tart a few weeks ago and it, it was an epic fail, it just horrible. It didn't set, you know, all of that stuff, but um. 
uh, yeah, so I, I've enjoyed baking and, um, you know, offered to the students, you know, to walk them through some of the um, recipes because they want to learn how to make their own or they can't visit with family. And so it can be a nice way to, you know, not sit on the couch watching Netflix and you warm up the house and it smells great and you get to enjoy pie for breakfast or dessert or whatever for a few days. So. <laughs> There is a lot about pie I did not know about. <laughs> there's a lot of happiness. There's a lot of connection. There's a lot of friendships, preparation, experimenting. There's like so many things that I didn't know that could go into a pie throughout this pandemic since I've been staying home more. I have been like seeing my mom like cook since she's like um, cook over house. My dad could cook too, but not the best cook. <laughs> that's okay my dad like will admit he's like he, he doesn't even know how to boil an egg he jokes but <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite play, flavor of pie you know I've really enjoyed the last couple of years making um, peach pie in the summer and I steep the peaches in uh, strong tea uh, berries tea this type of Irish tea I tried when I was in Ireland um, works well and so when you eat it and it's cold on a hot day, it tastes like peach iced tea. Um, mm. So I've enjoyed that. Um, you know, apple's pretty standard and I add like vanilla or ginger, um, sometimes uh, persimmons to it. And it, I try and stick with things that are seasonal and, um, you know, just constantly trying different things. So. It's all sounds tasty as well, especially like the um, tea pie. <laughs> <laughs> and to just add, um, to connect it back to ethnomusicology, like I, I published in the second volume of the ethnomusicologist cookbook um, and, you know, recipes I learned that I really enjoyed uh, when I was living with the um, Maldonado family. Um, so my compadres and, um, and some of their friends. So I have like a, a meal and walk people through um, some of my favorite foods there. And so that was a fun publication, like overlap of my hobbies and um, my research experience. So. Interesting. Is this publication like uh, viewable anywhere? Yes. So it's available on Amazon. Um, it's, I forget which publisher it is, but I know you can get it on Amazon and probably some other resources like uh, Abe Books. I often shop there instead. Um, and I, I have a copy. It's on display in building five when you walk in and see the um, faculty publications. Um, it might be behind some of my other publications, but, um, and then I guess if you really just want to focus on what I published, um, I can share my chapter for free or my recipes for free with people, you know, so you don't have to pay for the whole book. It's like 40 bucks, but um, there's some great recipes in there. And it's, we made the recipes for like eight servings or more. So if you're planning a dinner party and you want like a good um, Spotify track list or you know, you can find the videos on YouTube or something and then um, make food for when we all can reconvene safely. <laughs> what is like an idea of a pie that you have or what would be a pie that you would like to make? I feel like my pie experience is mostly just real basic olive oil crust or salad oil crust, um, often canola oil. And so it's vegan, um, which I like, but, you know, I, I like to watch the baking show and cupcake wars and all of those things. Um, so eventually it'd be, it'd be nice to learn how to make some of the other styles of crusts, like a chiffon pie, or um, I'm trying to think of the name, it's Earl Grey, oh, what's that? The pie hole has this Earl Grey tea uh, pie and it's like a lemon meringue type of pie, but it's a Earl Grey tea flavor. And I really like that. That's, that's sort of what inspired me to try the peach iced tea pie that I made. And so trying to find recipes that have, it's not just like throw the fruit in, cook it so it doesn't make it soggy and go. Um, I'd, I think I'd like to learn some more techniques. Like I don't have very good techniques when it comes to cooking and baking. I just kind of know what I learned from my mom and have experimented with. So that would be one of my next steps is finding a way to experiment with different types of crusts and also different uh, fillings that aren't just cooked down fruit or macerated fruit. <laughs> nice. Still for like experimenting with like pie techniques and other ingredients as well. Uh, every time I watch the baking show, I'm like, I don't know, or master chef or something. I'm like, I've never even heard those terms. 
I think there's probably some types of cakes or, um, you know, doing things that like are more decorative and trying to find a way to do those that are um, tasty would be nice. <laughs> I know when I watch it on the show that it, I, I'll think, oh, that looks really awesome. And then I forget the, you know, French terms for it because I don't speak French. And so it's hard for me to remember them sometimes, but um, probably some types of cakes or like, I like like little pastries and things like that. Um, those would be nice to, to learn how to bake. <laughs> nice. Well, I wish you best on your like pie baking ventures. Um, keep sharing it with us. Anytime. <laughs> how does the future look for you? Are you currently working on any projects or like anything before you guys come back to campus next fall? Yeah, so um, too many projects, but that keeps me going most of the time. I have an article I'm finishing up that will hopefully be trilingual, English, Spanish, and Quechua that I started in June um, with Patricia Maldonado, my Quechua teacher and, and compadre, or like kind of like host brother um, in Ecuador. So we've been working on that for the Smithsonian. Um, we might do another piece for the Smithsonian about um, like Quechua weddings and things. There's some footage back from 2011 when we produced the um, Hatun Kotama album that uh, it's some great video footage that the videographer who's also kind of like having me work on the publications, uh, Charlie Weber, he's, he wanted me to write something about it. So there's those projects. Um, this winter, I'll be busy with the World Music Textbook and it's an online open source modular digital textbook. And we're hoping to launch our first, like so far we have seven submissions, but we're hoping to launch everything in the spring. Mm. And so I have to go through and do all the editing. I mean, like helping with revising and formatting um, with my two, um, we're, three of us are the main editors for the textbook. And so hopefully those will be articles, uh, you know, me and other people can uh, start using in our classrooms. And I also have a great event planned for um, around Cinco de Mayo. So that's one of my next projects is doing some of the research about the history of Cinco de Mayo and also a lot of the interracial um, coalitions and even like interracial dance halls that were in El Monte and places. Um, and it was something I was planning with um, actually Jay Michael um, who used to run the Soul Ensemble. Um, so we're planning like a, how can we combine you know, soul ensemble and mariachi. And there's all these low rider classics um, that, you know, like Chicano classics that um, I arranged and uh, we have the medley for it. And so we're planning a music video for the mariachi and we're planning um, this, we'll premiere it with a Cinco de Mayo event that will be discussing, you know, connecting to discussions of like Black Lives Matters and a lot of the topics that have come up and even confronting anti-Blackness in the Latinx community and um, looking at some of the history that a lot of us don't realize. And for us is right down the street, you know, there's even a, a song by, uh, is it Ronnie and the Pomona Casuals? Um, I'll have to look and double check, but um, you know, songs of, and bands that were from this area are performed in Pomona and things. So I tried to make it like a historical local research project, but I'm gonna do most of that research this winter too, so. <laughs> Wow, we got like a lot of like stuff coming up. Where can listeners um, connect with you or contact you? Yeah, so the CPP Mariachi, um, the Instagram account is probably what I use the most, but we have a Facebook and um, a Twitter page um, or Twitter handle. Um, I'm usually good with my email. If somebody emails me, if I miss it, I usually will get around to it the second time. So you can always ping me again after a few days if I missed it somehow. Um, and so yeah, usually uh, via email or, or social media uh, works well. And you know, I hope people get into research and um, community events and everything and um, on campus and off campus in their own communities. And you know, your research can be the basis of some of that advocacy work too, so. Do you have any last words you would like to say to the audience? Any advice, parting messages? Well, I guess since we're recording this during the pandemic and um, I know a lot of music students are gonna be listening to this, um, I would say like, 
you know, don't give up. <laughs> I know, especially for people studying music right now, parts of the future might look a little bleak in terms of job opportunities. But um, what I can tell you from the gigs I've been able to take for mariachi during this time is that live music will still be relevant to people. People still want it. There's still a demand. Um, it, I'm sure there will be a lot of things that will bounce back. Um, I'm sure that many of us and many of, um, you know, people in the generations younger than me will have to rethink some of the social safety networks or safety nets that we'll need um, to make sure that people don't suffer as much as we are right now. Um, and I, I hope that, you know, in your classes and your projects, or if you take classes with me, that you can um, get a glimpse of the ethnomusicological perspectives and lenses. And, um, you know, thinking about when we interact with people or understanding people, you know, a lot of times we see music, we say music is a universal language. It's really not. There are many languages, many musical languages, right? But I think that when we can appreciate or learn certain meanings of people's musical languages that helps us feel closer to them. And so um, sometimes we might hear music or we might associate like um, a group of people and say, oh, I don't like that music or I don't like that group of people. But, you know, sometimes it just takes a little more careful listening to make that connection and get over those um, initial reactions or stereotypes or whatever, you know, and learn what's beautiful and fun. And it might be completely different to what you're used to, but that doesn't mean that you can't come to an appreciation of it of some sort. I hope everybody weathers as well, takes care of themselves, stays safe. And, um, you know, once we have the virus under control, we can get back to working on a society we want to see in the future. So. Dr. Vejo, I want to thank you for dropping in today and having a talk with us and spending like some of your time to just like talk about how's it been during the pandemic and talk about you and talk about stuff about like involvement, ecology, all these other things as well. So thank you. Anytime. Thanks for having me. This concludes our episode. I wish everyone a wonderful day. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>